So it's kind of like Amos is just uh, a prude because he's against <laughs> drinking and against enjoying life. And uh, if you if you read on to either the next chapter or the one after, but you know all the you you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria who say to your husbands, "Bring us some drinks," like kind of a killjoy. Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far-right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far-right. This is All the Rage. I guess you could look at it that way. I don't think he's a killjoy as much as he's he's a killjoy, you know, if you're getting drunk and getting off on the backs of the poor, you know. Yeah, I I, I did leave out uh, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's a, you know, that, I mean, how, that is. There is a way that you hear the prophets get talked about, or not even the prophets get talked about, but these passages have definitely been used in like you shouldn't drink sermons. Oh, sure, sure. Like dedicate Absolutely. yourselves to the Lord. Uh, don't ask your husbands to bring you a drink. Um, and you know, we mentioned it a little bit ago uh, in in the same recording session that we're definitely in now. Uh, <laughs> wearing the wearing the same clothes. <laughs> Yeah. We well, suddenly it got quite cold in the area that I'm recording, so that <laughs> hence the hence the sweatshirt, right? Yes, uh, yes, and the and the different lighting. Um, but you know, this idea that the the one of the main uses that a lot of Christian writing, Christian evangelicalism, and that kind of popular understanding of prophets has is that prophecy is prediction, right? Right, and so. Right. The prophets are full of these warnings that, you know, if you continue to act like this, then God will bring the Assyrians and the Assyrians will destroy your country and take your temple apart brick by brick uh, and, and so on. And so that gets put to all sorts of apologetic uses. Right. Right. And right. You know, the, you know, the odds of every prophecy about Jesus being fulfilled in one person are the same as the odds of a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a 747. Oh, God save me. Those are big odds. <laughs> I only have to hear one more of those, right? That's what, what I told what you, you. Promised. That's what I promised. That's what you, yep. you were to get two. One at the beginning and one when you don't know when it's coming. Oh, see, I already didn't know that was coming because I <laughs> I can continue to believe the best about you. <laughs> After all of these years, you. I, I, <laughs> uh, no, you know, thank you. Thought we could add some some levity to this, at least on on my side, maybe maybe for our listeners. Yeah, we'll <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll have to put up we'll a see poll our- and see if people want <laughs> people want the torment to continue. <laughs> you may not want to do that. I, I feel like people enjoy yeah I enjoy think torment. Right. <laughs> um. Uh, but yes, you're right. You know, using using the prophets as a way to say, "Oh, oh, you shouldn't drink," 
instead of like, oh, you shouldn't oppress people. <laughs> you know, as long as, <laughs> as long as you're not using the proceeds of oppression to get drunk and get off, then you know you're right. you're perfectly okay. Well, I guess you know. <laughs> Uh, an exercise in in missing the point for sure, uh, but yeah. So so Amos is railing against people who are living large off the backs of the poor and the oppressed. Uh, they are they're partying, they're getting rich, they're having a lot of fun while um, lots of people are laboring and and suffering to make that happen. Um, and Amos says that that God's judgment is going to come if that doesn't if that doesn't stop. Did you have any more before we move on to a, a later chapter in in Amos? <clears throat> no, we're we're good to continue. Okay, so he uh, if we fast forward to to chapter five, uh, he talks about this. He says, "Ah, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground." Wormwood was a plant that was known for its bitter taste, um, and so what we see here is. The uh, well, I'll go on to, to the next verse or a couple of verses later in verse chapter 10. It says, They hate the one who reproves in the great in the gate, they abhor the one who speaks the truth. So, what we have happening is these people, particularly these, these poor people, these vulnerable people, uh, have come to resent the very justice system that's supposed to protect them because the system itself has been turned, uh, and abused in a way that it's only protecting the rich and the powerful. Um, not that there's any parallels between that and, and our current system whatsoever, right? But we can imagine a system in which you know the rich and the powerful benefit from it, and it's used to crush and oppress the poor. Um, but the very the, the gates is the center of justice, where people would come to receive judgments, uh, to to bring their their cases to the leaders and the the city gates, the the town square, so to speak, where judgment happens. Judgments are being given uh, in favor to the rich and the powerful against the poor, even when it, it shouldn't be that way, obviously, because, you know, of bribes uh, and things like that. So Amos continues in verses 10 through 13 of chapter five. He says, therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Again, that center where justice is supposed to happen, where the, the rights of the poor are supposed to be protected because of bribes and, and other things. The, the rich and the powerful are uh, oppressing the needy, uh, they're tilting the scales of justice in their favor. And because of that, Amos says the judgment is going to be coming on them. It's kind of the nature of systems, right? right. It's a real um, palpable imperfection of just any, any sort of complex system in general can and likely will be turned from a benevolent intent into a personal enrichment scheme for the people who are kind of at the levers of that system, right? Like we, you know, we had this whole episode last, last episode, last week, not even last week. So last episode talking about how these systems were established precisely, including, you know, taxation systems, uh, grain taxes, levies that were established precisely for the protection of the poor, the marginalized, right? To create a social floor 
And those are the exact same systems that in this context are being, uh, being railed against, not the systems as such, but the use of the systems. Right. Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about today, like application for today and the kind of, you know, thinking uh, about social change or being an agent of social change and how we can, you know, kind of in some ways see ourselves in the position of the ones implementing a system or instituting it or thinking through like, what are policies that should be in place, right? So sort of, you know, imaginatively in the position of like a mosaic lawgiver, right? Of someone saying, we're going to establish the system to achieve these good ends, right? But we also often have to see ourselves in the position of the prophet who sees, look, this system that is in place has been perverted or it has been captured, right? And it is no longer achieving whatever good end it was originally created for, but is in fact being used um, to harm the very people it's supposed to, to protect. And, and so, I don't know, what, what is the model for social change that the prophets like Amos um, represent for us? Right, like how how do you cast yourselves against this kind of system when you know once a system is in place, like it kind of rolls on under its own steam, and like th- what does the individual do at that point? Right. Well, it's a good question, but I think even if we look at the prophets, they weren't super successful, right? I mean, um, so if we say if we look at the prophets as actual agents of change and measure their success that way, not super successful. Save maybe Jonah, right? <laughs> if you take Jonah literally, um, yeah. But everybody well. else, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, everybody else, like Amos, says, "Hey, if you don't stop this, you're going to experience judgment in the form of foreign conquest," which is exactly what happens. Uh, so we sort of have these voices crying out of the wilderness, and nobody paying attention. Uh, it's off the top of my head, I can't think of any particular prophetic movement that was actually successful in in changing the course. You know, Nehemiah – no, not Nehemiah, excuse me. Um, Hezekiah, maybe, to some degree, right? Right, Wards off, uh, you know, the, the, the people repent. But that's a king, not necessarily a prophet. Uh, when we get into these prophets, you know, they're, they're sort of – they're the weirdos on the street corner with a <laughs> megaphone that everybody sort of passes by and ignores and judgment comes anyway. Um, they, they don't seem to organize the or rally the lower classes. They just call out. They call out the injustice um, so that I guess the, the leadership is without excuse but you mentioned in our own day the way that that systems are sort of co-opted by the powerful and i think we've got a i mean the examples are legion um but in particular in the news for the past few weeks has been the way that supreme court justice clarence thomas um has sort of been uh, the the revelations that he's accepted these lavish uh, trips paid for by a very conservative GOP donor, Harlan Crow, um, right? Uh, you know, and and Justice Thomas. I mean, not necessarily that these trips are swaying his decisions in any way, but it's it's hard to wonder, um, right? You know, he, he's he's been pretty steadfastly 
radically conservative for a long time. But the fact that he's accepting these these lavish trips at the same time that he's writing opinions and making decisions at the highest court of the land that uh, affect so many people down below him is, is a very modern day example. Right, and it and it go it goes beyond you know because that's how he kind of tried to represent it at first was like oh I have. I have friends and I go on trips with my friends. It just so happens that some of them are billionaires and own private jets. Like, well, I'm not going to take the private jet out of principle. Like I hang out with my friends, but then, you know, this drip, drip, drip of revelations as people dig into that story and find, Oh, that that's weird. What if I pull on this other little stray? Oh, that's weirder. That's weirder. And so, you know, you know, Harlan Crow bought a bunch of real estate directly from Clarence Thomas and, among other things, lets Clarence Thomas's mother live rent free on one of these properties, which is is fine from the sense that you know I wish more billionaires were letting people live rent free on their properties. But the fact that it's this one in this one case, right? right. It, that's that's an interesting bit of relational leverage. But then, uh, in addition, and here's where he falls into truly hypocritical territory. Um, Clarence Thomas for years, you know, they do file and are required to file kind of these minimal forms for gifts that they've received and also sources of income other than the court. And he reported, he has reported for years income from a real estate company that now that people are digging, they realize this company has been defunct for over a decade. But yeah. every year he's report, he's filing income from this yeah. defunct um which again, like God knows why, like what's going on. I don't think he's actually like money laundering for the mob or whatever. Like that seems like the least likely uh, interpretation of why he's reporting income from a non-existent entity. But he does say, well, I'll go back and correct those forms. And that's, that's the end of the issue. Right. right. Meanwhile, right. he's the same one who was, who issued a majority opinion that said that if you are on death row, you cannot um you cannot file an appeal on the basis that you had uh incompetent legal representation even if you can show that your lawyer did have access to exculpatory information that they did not use in court the fact that they that your law that your legal counsel failed in their duty is not grounds for you to appeal your execution by the state the double standard between right. that opinion, which Clarence Thomas signed off on, and the whoopsie of <laughs> multiple years of you know failure to disclose and uh, inaccurate disclosures and misrepresentations of his own finances for someone who has a lifetime appointment, right? Like the the, the hypocrisy there. Yeah, it's right. it's a picture perfect example of the kind of like uh, the system is working for the extremely wealthy, the extremely powerful, and it's not working for the people it was intended to protect, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so you, you, we can understand now why – I mean we have plenty of modern-day examples um, uh, of what Amos says in, in Chapter 5 – Oh, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground, people who take a system that is supposed to protect the the most vulnerable and turn it upside down so that it actually is used against them. Um, I, I'm thinking of that quote for uh, 
me find it here. Um, Brian Stevenson, uh, founder of the, is it the Equal Justice Initiative? Um, yeah, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, who says this. He says, we have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, right? Um, and I, I remember very distinctly, this is back when we were in seminary together in 2014, when Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri, um, and all of the riots happened around there. And I, I remember going through a transformation of my own at that time when I asked myself, okay, why is this happening? Why are people rising up in, in riots in regards to this? And then, you know, coming from my background, I, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to it. And I, I just started listening to the stories. And I remember thinking, you know, if, if I thought that the system that was supposed to protect me was being weaponized against me, I might riot too, right? That, that helped me empathize with what was going on. And I think that's a, a perfect modern example of what we see Amos talking about. Systems that are supposed to protect people, especially the poor and the vulnerable, systems that are supposed to you know, bring everybody under equality under the law, right? Which is, which is the stated intent when they're actually used to protect people who are guilty over and against those who are vulnerable, marginalized, uh, people end up hating those very systems, abhorring those very systems and, and then realizing, so this, what's happening with, with Michael Brown and Ferguson is happening at the very same time that I'm taking a, a class with you, uh, from Dr. Lozano, uh, and the prophets, in in the Old Testament, and these things are starting to connect for me. Oh, okay, so so that's what's going on here. These people who are supposed to find equality, supposed to find protection in these systems, are finding these systems leveraged against them. All of a the sudden, they hate the system. And and what do you do? What do you do if the system that's supposed to protect you is being weaponized against you? At that point, the only thing to do is, is to riot, right? And so there was, it was a sort of a light bulb moment for me, like, oh, okay, like I get it. I, I come from a background where the system works in my favor, but if it didn't, I think I would be right there in in the same position. Right. And that's, that, that's one answer, or at least that points to one answer for what the prophets do kind of, matter, right? Because it's not like effective forms of, of resistance and social change that gets the policies changed or even gets the, the bums thrown out. Right. right, but um, but they do represent a way of analyzing what's going on and giving a, a a framework or a context for being able to point to what's going on and not and and to say no, this is wrong and this is why. Right, right. Um, and and often it's it's in the middle of or even in the aftermath of. A catastrophe, right? Like right. look at Jeremiah and the the Babylonian conquest, right? Um, just the ability to give shape and coherence to what seems to be the randomness of life or the randomness of uh, social upheaval, right? Um, and that's like that's not nothing, right? The ability to sure. Um, ability to put to put a name to an event that's happening and even to be able to put it in a, a a theological frame right 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 exactly 
And I think it's worth pointing out here that in lots of these cases, the prophets are only justified in hindsight, right? In the moment, in the present, they looked pretty crazy. They looked pretty wild. They looked pretty, um, you know, disconnected. And it's only after the consequences happen. And there's something that's both simultaneously encouraging and discouraging about that, right? There's there's a sense that it's encouraging when you think, okay, like, I feel like I'm shouting into the void, screaming into the wind, and nothing's happening. You know, okay, well, at least I'm in good company. But also discouraging, like, I'm shouting into the wind and screaming into the void, and it's not doing anything, right? The consequences are still coming. Nobody's changing their mind. Um, you know, again, the the ineffectiveness of the prophets in their modern, in their contemporary situation is slightly disheartening. We we look back and we say, oh, look at these people who are who are speaking truth to power, but it didn't go well for them. And and, and people on on the you know whole didn't seem to respond. Um, so I'm not I'm not quite sure what to make of that. You know, do, do we? Does that mean yeah. that we are to adopt different tactics? Does it mean that you know we we need to instead of just shouting into the void, we need to, to mobilize people? Right? Do we look at the prophets and their project as a failure because they didn't achieve their ends, or do we accept you know all we can do is speak and let the cards fall where they may? Yeah, there's there's something to be said for the way. The, the centrality of the prophet, the concept of prophet to Israel's religious, <clears throat> religious identity, self-conception, the, the high status, even if it's often in retrospect, but the high status that is accorded the prophet and then the, even the concept of prophet, right? Um, there, because, because there's a strong parallel between the prophet and their powerlessness and Israel and its powerlessness vis-a-vis these larger powerful empires all around them who are constantly um, kind of vying for their territory, divvying them up, installing their own client rulers. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at the, the prophets who are addressing the leadership of Israel. There are also prophets who are uh, in, engaged in fiery denouncements of external enemies, right? Like you read sure. Nahum and uh, it's it's relatable in the sense that, I mean, we all have uh, enemies uh, except for Matthew Vines, but most of us have enemies uh, <laughs> <laughs> whom, whom we feel a, you know, a passionate uh, opposition toward and um, being able to put that into word, right? The Psalms have a lot of this kind of language too, right? Uh, that, that you, you want to see your enemies just destroyed, just absolutely devastated because of the things right. that they've done to right. people you love, the things that they've done to you. Um, and so that, that language shows up in some of the prophets too. Um, but an important piece of context for interpreting the entire Hebrew Bible is it's, it's written from the perspective of this, this tiny little nation that is militarily insignificant compared to the powers around it and right. knows that. And so right. their confidence in their God delivering them is uh, in, in some, in some senses of survival mechanism, right? Um, 
you know, the, the, the comparison that Lozano always makes is, you know, if Puerto, if Puerto Rico, some Puerto Rican poet starts writing about how Puerto Rico is going to wage war on Washington, DC, and with the help of God, uh, absolutely crush the, uh, uh, United States military and send the F-15s into the into the ocean, and that kind of, like that's the language and that's the right, right comparison that the that the prophets were making, right? Um, yeah. and that that the kind of tininess of Israel is in a lot of ways parallel to the tininess of Amos shaking his fist against the the royal leadership uh, to to whom he was just you know some some backwood farmer, right. 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 Yeah. And I think th- this gets into some some deep and challenging questions because Amos tells the leadership, hey, if you don't knock this off, if you don't cut this out, judgment is going to come. But the judgment that's going to come is foreign oppression, which really isn't vindication for the people who've been right. oppressed. Does not, right? improve, does not improve their conditions. <laughs> it, it doesn't at all, right? I mean, it, it, it drastically worsens the condition of the ruling class, but it doesn't improve the conditions of, of the underclass, right? right? And so right. it raises some, some tough questions there. When, when, when judgment comes, it's still not better. It still doesn't right the wrongs uh, of what's been going on necessarily. Now, perhaps – if you think that maybe the people who are left behind are the people who are the the most vulnerable and they get a little bit of respite from the overt mm-hmm. oppression and a chance to sort of rebuild, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of, of respite that comes from that. But um, yeah, it, it raises some tough questions. I mean, it's, it's not like the systems mm-hmm. are overturned and all of a sudden become just, it just becomes somebody else becomes the, the ruling oppressor in the area, um, which is, Sort of a, a divergence from what we're talking about, which is you know the fact that the prophets are calling Israel back to to covenant faithfulness and pointing out that social justice injustice is a key ingredient in Israel's unfaithfulness, mm-hmm. right? Um, right. Which you know theologically was also an option, right? Like the the call of the prophet, the challenge to repent, presumes that the leadership could have said. Yes, we will repent and uh, act more justly toward the the people, and that a different outcome would have ensued. Right? right. Um, you know, some theological systems would say that that's uh, th- that only the appearance of choice exists, and actually it was all determined from the beginning. Blah blah blah. But the the framing of the literature, like for, uh, Amos as a Amos as a figure, believes that. Both ways are possible. Which way right. will you go? Right. Right. And so I think one of the things that we want to we want to foreground or highlight in this is this idea that for the prophets who the literature presents as spokespeople for God, their message is that social injustice is as much an affront to God as idolatry, that mistreating the poor and the vulnerable, that, that profiting from exploitation is a deviation from the covenant with God tantamount to idolatry, that worshiping other gods and treating people unjust, unjustly are equal violations of the covenant in God's eyes. 
Mm-hmm. And for the purpose of our project, I think that's that's really important to highlight that that idolatry and injustice are co-equal violations of of the covenant, and each are met with with judgment. We can look at the the consequences of each, um, but that in the eyes of the prophets, as as the mouthpieces of God, the the oppression, the exploitation, the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable offends God just as much as worshiping other gods. Um, and I think that is worth highlighting and foregrounding in the context of what we're trying to do here. Um, so, And I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, Amos is not the only prophet that speaks out against this kind of thing. Um, Right, we can we can look at Isaiah, one of the quintessential prophets who had lots of things to say, who's often quoted in his predictions of Jesus. Um, but in Isaiah chapter five, verse eight, I know this is one of your sort of go-to passages. Isaiah says, "Woe to you who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is room for no one but you." And you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. And he's talking here about people who are accumulating wealth and property, which, as we saw in our last episode, was specifically guarded against by the protections in Torah that Torah provided through Jubilee and um, sabbatical years, an opportunity for to prevent the accumulation of wealth. Uh, apparently, that has gone ignored. Right, people are not doing that. They're not. They're not returning fields and and homes to ancestral lands. But these people are accumulating wealth and property, um, and and wealth and property that were supposed to be reserved for other families and tribes. Um, you know, I I think a modern parallel to that would be what you know in modern capitalistic culture, mergers and acquisitions, right, <laughs> or these <laughs> right. Um, right. These these major uh, these these super wealthy people who continue to buy up farmlands, or these um, venture capitalists who continue to buy up these single family homes in order to rent them out and, and make money. People who are continuing to add to their capital portfolio uh, at the expense of people who could own these lands and, and make a profit for themselves from it. Um, People who park on Twitter usernames and then never tweet from them, but you still can't get it. <laughs> that's that's exactly what Isaiah had in mind. Um, you know, I, I <laughs> man, if I if I was on on my game when you were going to say that, I would have inserted a sound effect. But you're just going to have to wait. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we have these people who are who are building, who are accumulating this this portfolio of capital, right? Uh, they're doing well, and so somebody's in a hard time, so they buy their house, so they buy another field, and then from those houses, from those fields, they rent them out to these tenant farmers, and they make money off of that, and then they can buy more. And all of a sudden, the the ruling class has a huge portfolio of capital, and you have this underclass who is dependent upon them to to let to lease this land and, and use it, uh, and it continues to drive the the wedge between the haves and the have nots. And Isaiah says, woe to you. Woe to you who do this. You're going to, this is going to come back poorly for you. (laughs) Uh, So in Isaiah, in chapter one, uh, we, we sort of get 
the solution to this. Not only does Isaiah diagnose a problem, but he presents the solution. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, seek good and not evil so that you may live and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be, it may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnants of Joseph. Um, in other words, Isaiah says that the remedy, the solution of injustice is for those who have power to seek justice, to start using their positions of power and privilege to advocate for those who are under the boot of oppression. And if they do so, just maybe God may relent of the coming just uh, the coming judgment. Well, as as strategies for social change go, asking the asking the the people in charge to to start being nicer is uh, <laughs> may, maybe not. It it always works well, right? Uh, <laughs> what what, what the fiery was it judgment of God, on the other hand. <laughs> Now that's a that's a strategy for social change. <laughs> what is it that Martin Luther King Jr. said in letter from Birmingham Hill? He, he says, uh, uh, "Freedom is never willingly granted by uh, is never given voluntarily by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed." Um, that's right. So right, and, and we see that right. We we see that principle come to fruition in the lives of the prophets. It's not as if. The, the ruling class of Israel heeded Isaiah's pleas to do justice, right? Um, they didn't. And because of that, uh, you know, at least according to the framing of Isaiah, that is the reason why why judgment comes. But all of right. this is – And we, is talk, we talked in a, in a recent episode about uh, David Graeber's work. Right, all yes. looking at, at history of debt relations, and yeah. how there's sort of a an observable cycle of the a massive accumulation of wealth by a small minority of uh, aristocracy, very frequently precedes a total social collapse, um, either from a, an external force or just the internal collapse of the of the society. Right, and all of this is so fascinating in the context of coming judgment, because so often when calamity strikes in modern day in America, the so-called mouthpieces for God want to blame things like, you know, LGBTQ people, um, you know, or, or atheists the, or whatever. The, the feminists and the atheists. Yeah. And yeah. The, but over and over again in the prophets, it's injustice, right? Never do we see the super conservative, uh, you know, celebrities, religious celebrities, pastors, or 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 whatever, you know, saying, "Hey, America is experiencing judgment because we're oppressing the poor. America is experiencing judgment because you know we're we're corrupt because our systems of justice are stacked in favor of the rich and the powerful." Right, um, it, it's a it's a it's very convenient that the interpretation of catastrophe in America is put on the backs of those who are already oppressed instead of saying, hey, maybe we ought to consider right. the way that we're you know 
oppressing these people through our systems of exploitation, through the way that we have created systems of justice that benefit the rich and guilty more than the poor and the innocent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, we see the way that the the general message of the prophet is so grossly distorted in in our own day, blaming catastrophe on some perceived scapegoat that's already oppressed instead of taking a, a hard look in the mirror and saying, you know, and and again, my own my own theodicy in this, I, I I don't for one second believe that Hurricane Katrina was a result of the fact that we're oppressing the poor, especially because, you know, Katrina uh, you know, affected the poor more than anybody else. Um, but right. if we're going to look at national catastrophe and national disaster as judgment from God, uh, we ought to at least be fully biblical in the, in it and say maybe it's because we've allowed you know rampant injustice to to fester in our systems rather than trying to blame you know the feminists and the gays. Right. Well, certainly there was a uh, critical lack of public investment in uh, public safety that contributed to the catastrophe that was Katrina, right? Sure, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. But to say that that's the cause of Katrina, right, then, right. You know, which right. disaffect the poor. Um, you know, so it, we, we looked at Isaiah's solution there um, to seek good, not evil. Amos's solution in Amos chapter 5 is, is that famous quote, Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right, this call, you know, if you want to avoid this catastrophe, then then start dealing with the injustice in your midst. Um, but but there's a few takeaways from the prophets that I think are worth highlighting um, specifically. One of which is that in the context of the prophets, biblical justice is social. It's not just individual. What we see in the prophets is that systems and structures themselves can become unjust. Laws can be unjust. And that seeking justice involves not just transforming individual hearts, but changing systems and structures and laws. Um, this is foundational to, to the prophets. And I think if we're to look at some sort of hermeneutical um, application of the prophets, we've got to be willing to say that we need to change more than just individual hearts and minds. We need to start looking at the systems as they exist and the effect that they have on people who are on the margins. Right, which is 100% the opposite of what you hear from you know, your social conservatives who say you know, social justice is the antonym of, of biblical justice. And you know, we, we recently reread from the statement on social justice in the gospel where they said justice is giving each person his or her due, right? Exactly. And that's it. And that that can be sort of administered on an individualized uh, basis, right? And completely lacks any uh, systemic analysis or systemic prescription um, to to fix it. And so there there is a sense in which the the prophets go beyond, like the role of the prophet is to know what time it is and to call that out and to create this frame of reference, this mode of analysis that other people can can grab onto. Um, but that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it, right? The end right. of it is addressing those systemic issues and creating change through, through systemic change, right? New policies, yeah. um, new policies, new laws, uh, 
get rid of old policies, you know, create that sort of concrete practical change. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I'm I'm fond of saying, and we'll get into this a little bit later, is that is that uh, charity can't fix what policy creates. Right. Um, right in in the American church where we're big on charity right we think that we ought to ought to give charitably to the poor um, but this distinction between charity and justice right the charity is is good and necessary and helpful but it doesn't fix what policy creates sometimes policy needs to be adjusted in order to fix the systemic issues below um, but one of the other things I want to highlight that comes from this is this idea that the Bible almost never blames the poor for their own poverty, right? When we, re- when we read the prophets, when we read the Mosaic law, um, the Bible overwhelmingly blames oppressive practices of the rich and the powerful. You know, it doesn't say these people were lazy, these people didn't work hard enough. It is the practices and the systems of the rich and the powerful that, that lead to poverty, not uh, a, a feeling of entitlement or a spirit of laziness among among poverty uh, among the poor right. there, um, there there are exceptions right and you have to say that correct you have sure. to acknowledge that because otherwise that's all people's attention will focus on because there you know right. there are these proverbs about you know yeah. the fool and and slothfulness and um so so those exceptions do exist right right but yes overwhelmingly is is recognizing what is like if you just think through it rationally true like there there's this there's such a strong tendency among american conservatives in particular like america has such a like thorough individualist streak pull yourself up by your own bootstraps uh, even the very successful have this sense of like well i did that right like i'm i'm special and unique um as opposed to uh the fact that in a system like it within a given system there there can be there's room for and this is what like proverbs will point out is some individual decision making will kind of sort you into various categories right like there's a degree to which um the like certain approaches to life or certain uh strategies certain habits whatever uh, will land you in in poverty or can see you escaping poverty right like these these um there there's churn within the within the system and there's a degree to which you can um sort yourself in or out although ecclesiastes as usual comes back against the wisdom literature and, uh, and observes the race is not always to the swift nor the battle to the strong but luck and chance affects them all right and right. ecclesiastes is full of these observations of well often this sort of common sense assumptions that hard work means that you get ahead well i've seen the opposite the opposite happens all the time we've all seen it right right, um, right. but but even within these general tendencies the observation that you perhaps with some luck and the right skill set and the right habits might escape poverty and that that therefore is the christian message like you shouldn't employ those habits you should escape poverty right that doesn't change the fact that at a systemic structural level, we have a society that depends on the existence of poverty, right? Like, you know, think about something like minimum wage or, you know, a wage at which you cannot afford to rent in your city, right? And maybe you can get out of having a low wage job, whatever, but 
that means that somebody else has to take that job because at a systemic level, if the wage system were changed and nothing else were addressed, then all of a sudden, like that has this cascading effect on the rest right. of society. And so what we're really saying and what often what, you know, conservative pastors are telling their parishioners, um, without saying so in as many words, but what they're basically saying is make sure you've got yours, right? Yeah. Make sure it's not you. Exactly. But, I mean, somebody has to be living in poverty and not able to, you know, feed their children and not able to afford a, an apartment, a one bedroom apartment in their city. Make sure it's not you. Yeah. Right. And the prophets or, or us when we, when we address the systemic problem and say, look, I'll say, Everyone should be able to afford housing. Everyone should have access to healthcare. Everyone should have food. We, like we should have a floor beneath which no one need fear falling. Right? This basic uh, social—not just a safety net that catches you if you fall, but a the, but the basics necessary for life should be. We should ensure that that is provided to all people. Right. And there are various mechanisms we can use to do that at a systemic level, but we should ensure that that happens. That's different from saying, look, you don't have to be the poor one. And that's what the sort of individualist focus uh, says without saying. You know? I, f I feel like I can actually hear the applause of our listeners right now. You, you didn't mind that right. sound effect quite as much, did you? That one, you know. Yeah, but I think I think we figured it out. You you just need to use the applause, and uh, you know, if there are any like active like cheering or whooping sounds, uh, you know, like, like, ones that make me like feel this? good about myself. That's right. Yeah. So so if you use the sound effects to stroke my ego instead of make punchlines, then maybe we would be in a different place right now. All right, I'm out. That's good. But seriously, I, that, that that's exactly right, and it, and it it brings out this um, this distinction that I mentioned earlier that that justice is not charity, right? Both are necessary, but they're different. Charity is a band aid. Uh, justice is a cure. Charity is helping a few people beat the odds. Justice is changing the odds for everybody. Uh, or, or to quote Arch Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said, we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in, right? Both of these are important, but so much of, of American conservative Christianity is all focused on justice. And I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I think a lot of that is rooted in a savior complex, right? If we change the systems to make them more just, then all of a sudden we're not the saviors, right? We're not rescuing people from, from the river. We don't get to feel so good about ourselves because all of a sudden the system's working and the people are, you know, self-sufficient, which is what we say that we want. But then all of a sudden, you know, what do we, what, how do we make ourselves feel good with our, with our charity offerings? And there's always going to be a, a, a room for charity. I, I think that's the other thing too, sorry. There's always going to be room for charity and need for that. But looking at the the systems and the mosaic law and looking at the prophet's critique of those who have abandoned God's vision for a, a whole just society based on principles of shalom. Um, we see that sometimes the solution is not just giving more. The solution is changing the systems so that they really do protect the people who they're intended to protect 
protect, which is the poor and the vulnerable, which means acknowledging the fact that people who are poor are not poor because of their own bad decisions. They're poor because there are systems and people who are taking advantage of them, exploiting them, who need them to perpetuate the, the systems that we have come to rely on, which I think is exactly what you were talking about. That's all I got. Do you, you have anything else from the prophets you want to? Um, no, except to say, I think we're going to continue our, our mini series looking at uh, Jesus and the Jesus tradition next, next episode. And Jesus has to be understood squarely in the tradition of the prophets. Yes. Right? He, right. he, Theologically, the, you know, the gospels are incredibly dense. They're doing a lot of theological work with all of the, with various categories that we've talked about and some that we haven't. But, you know, Jesus is priest. Jesus is king. Jesus is son of man. Jesus is son of God. Uh, Jesus is preexistent logos. Like these are all built into what the, what the gospels are doing. But, uh, Je Jesus as Messiah, which is, um, you know, a, a big part of it as well. But, Perhaps most centrally, especially for the interpreting that Jesus' teachings in the context of his own ministry, Jesus identifies himself with the prophetic tradition right. uh, very squarely, right? And right. sets himself against the uh, religious authorities and the, you know, the official administration of the temple. Um, and so that's, that's, Everything that we've talked about here is going to kind of feed into and then I think become amplified in a lot of ways in looking at the uh, New, New Testament context and particularly the life and teachings of, of Jesus. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server at the links in the description. The intro-outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.